Hello there, and welcome once again to Insight Peterborough. I'm Devin Wilkins. Insight Peterborough is a project of the Peterborough chapter of the Canadian Council of the Blind, otherwise known as a CCB. And if you'd like to get more information about the CCB, all you have to do is send an email to ccbpeterborough at gmail.com. That's ccbpeterborough at gmail.com. For a small group of people, I'd say we are keeping quite busy. So I think that if you are blind, deafblind, or partially sighted, you might just want to check us out. All right. Well, there is going to be a fundraiser on Saturday, March 20th, and it's being sponsored by Fighting Blindness Canada. Can you imagine going a whole 24 hours without your telephone or your computer? I don't know how I'd manage to do that on a Saturday because there's always hockey on uh, a Saturday, but it certainly would keep you thinking about why you're doing it if it's a challenge that you want to take on. Uh, so here to talk to us is Doug Earl, who is the Executive uh, Director of Fighting Blindness Canada. And it's definitely worth the challenge if that's what you want to do. So here's the chat between Doug and me. Hi, Doug, and welcome back to the program. Oh, great. I'm glad to be back. And uh, I understand that there's going to be an event uh, in March, um, I guess sponsored by yourself at Fighting Blindness Canada, called Screens Off for Sight. Yes. When is that happening? Yeah, uh, we've launched uh, Screens Off for Sight. Uh, That's going to be held on Saturday, March 20th. And it's a challenge uh, to to all Canadians uh, to, uh, it's a 24-hour challenge to not look at a computer screen, a TV screen, or a, or your phone, those smartphones. Wow. Uh, You know, it's been, it's been quite a challenging period with COVID. Yes. And, and so we're, we're asking Canadians to to join the challenge, turn off your screens for 24 hours and encourage others to join you and help raise money to support Fighting Blindness Canada's vision research. Okay. Uh, and uh, if somebody were to challenge as someone else, uh, would they have them uh, go to the your website to register? Yes. Uh, the website is fbcscreensoff.ca. That's fbcscreensoff.ca. Okay. And you can sign up for the challenge. You uh, you can use that to, uh, once you've signed up, you can use that to encourage others to support you and, and support making a gift to save, sight-saving research, or you can challenge others to join you. And we have lots of helpful tips, like what to do without your, your screens. I know I know it 
it, it is a challenge. If you were seeing me right now, my hand's shaking. Can I do that 24 hours without looking at TV computers on my phone? But, you know, there's lots of fun things to do. Uh, it's, it's the spring uh, equinox, so, uh, so it's spring cleaning time kicks off. Uh, the first day of spring, uh, you can have a family game tournament, uh, you know, playing chess or Monopoly or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, read a book. Can you imagine? Listen to a book. How about that? Uh, you know, dog walking. Uh, there's lots, lots of things we can do uh, in order to turn off our uh, screens. And, and it really is important. You know, we, we discovered, as I'm, as I'm sure all your listeners that with COVID, people are spending more time on the computer, on watching TV, playing video games, and yes. it really is uh, challenging for eye health. You know, your your eyes are not designed all day to stare at a screen directly mm-hmm. in front of you. And and there is a 2020 20 rule that the Canadian Ophthalmological Society, so that the medical doctors, uh, suggest to give your eyes a much-needed break during these long work days or long time, uh, you know, kids playing video games. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're looking at a screen for 20 minutes, look at something 20 feet away for 20 seconds. The longer you look away, the better, but at least for 20 seconds. So give your eyes a, a rest. Blinking is the other thing. We're, you know, we're staring at these screens and we need to blink often. Yes. You know, normally people blink about 12 times a minute, but uh, computer users uh, blink only about half of that much. Really? So it, so it really dries out your eye. Mm-hmm. And so remembering the blink, blink is another helpful tip in order to maintain your eye health. And we're hoping that Canadians will take up the challenge, especially during this COVID period of lockdown or isolation, and uh, be able to rest their eyes, do some other things to keep their eye health, uh, so that we're all able to see when COVID's over. And uh, I suppose going outside would be uh, another thing that uh, people could do to uh, uh, find something to do other than look at their screens. Yeah, I know. I thoroughly enjoy walking my dog. Uh, and it's the first day of spring, so we're encouraging people to, uh, to do that as well. Uh, we're suggesting you turn off your phones, you turn off your computers, you turn off the TV uh, when you go to bed on March 19th. But you wake up at, and start the challenge uh, for 24 hours uh, without screens and uh, encourage people uh, before and after you do the challenge uh, to help support critical research for Fighting Wildlife Canada. Now, you, you realize that you've given quite, people quite the challenge because um, in this shortened NHL season, People will want to catch as much of, uh, of hockey as they they can. So um, maybe they'd have to find it on the radio. Yes. <laughs> yes, they can do it on the radio. That's not a screen. Yeah, that's you know, right. Enjoy, enjoy time resting your eyes uh, for a much needed break. We're we're challenging Canadians to to really take good health, good eye health during this COVID period. And, and to encourage others, you know, mm-hmm. ask them to join the, the challenge with you on March 20th. Take the, the 24 hours without a screen and help raise funds for inviting blindness. Um, what kind of things, what kind of projects do you fund? 
Well, uh, we're we're. There's so much to say. I'm stumped. No. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, no, no. I, I, Finding Minds Canon, of course, is the largest charitable funder of vision research. We have a international thought leader scientific advisory board that review all of our research grants to find the best, most promising research available to Canadians. Our, uh, so this year, uh, we're funding a number of projects. One is uh, Dr. Leet, who's an optometrist at the University of Waterloo School of Optometry. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is busy working with uh, trying to develop an, an eye test, a standardized eye test for babies and toddlers. Oh. So right now, we cannot diagnose if you have an eye challenge uh, uh, before you turn three because if the ABCs are apples or dogs and you're, you have to vocalize that. So she's working on a test. And what that means uh, by standardized is this will become the gold standard that then babies and toddlers can be diagnosed that they have a vision challenge. We can go get genetic testing. And if they are fortunate enough that Unfortunate, but if there is, when you think about it, but but it is, but it is the if they have the gene that Mosterna targets, RPE65, then they could have at the very earliest moment uh, a gene therapy treatment approved in Canada that restores their sight, that enables, it protects them from, uh, it may, you know, makes the system work the way it's supposed to with that that RPE65 gene producing the proteins and the biologic system that enables uh, you to have night vision. And, and so we could do that before the damage is done at the very earliest days. So that's one, one example of our research. We're on another example, we're working on an AMD uh, solution that involves both gene therapy and stem cells. So rather than having eye infections, we would use uh, gene therapy to uh, replace and generate internally in your eye the anti-VEGF treatment that you're getting with your eye injection, and then using stem cells to replace some of the damaged uh, cells that, that have happened. Uh, so we're funding research that, that we that with a goal of in the next four years that, that we would take this gene therapy stem treatment and be able to deliver it in a clinical trial in humans. And that's happening right at Mount Sinai Hospital in uh, Sinai Health in uh, Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're investing in research in glaucoma, uh, trying to understand uh, uh, one form of glaucoma, and it's, it's a high-risk, high-reward. If it works, it has implications for, for many forms. Uh, we're investing in Usher... Uh, an usher uh, form of a uh, type of usher syndrome, which uh, which we're trying to really understand why the cilia in the eye, and that's that's the connector, the feeder to the the um, photoreceptors, why they're not working in ushers. Uh, that also impacts your hearing and and sight. Uh, we're doing a high risk, high reward research in taking all the molecules that, that the FDA has approved, so that this is the, the agency that approves treatments in the United States. They, they have a library of molecules that, that they've approved that can be used in humans. And we have, a, we've, you know, the high risk was we, we wanted to find a test that could use these molecules and test it against the genes 
inherited lightning eye diseases, inherited retinal disease. And, and we were successful. Year one of the project, we were able to translate a cancer discovery in using this, this test, and we were able to translate it using the genes that cause blindness. Wow. Now, now we're running the test against this library of molecules, and we're hoping that in, in the next year, uh, we'll, we'll be able to see something that, that okay, this gene was upregulated, so it, or it was downregulated, and then we, then, then we can just focus on that molecule and understand if it helps uh, uh, save site or restore site. And, and that's, so it's a high risk, which we passed. Now it's a high reward. Let's hope we can find, you know, medications that, that are already safe in human and be able to show that it has an impact on uh, saving site or restoring site. Uh, which, which really is taking years, just years out of uh, the accelerating the discovery of, of new treatments that could help people with living with uh, inherited blinding eye diseases like, like retinitis pigmentosa, for example. <laughs> so those are just a sample. I could keep going if wow. not. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly sounds uh, like you've got uh, a lot on your plate there that um, funds from this uh, screens off for sight would uh, really help with. Yes. Well, that's, that's exactly why we're challenging Canadians to join us for 24 hours without looking at their TV, computer, or, or phone uh, so that we can, uh, uh, you know, they can ask others to support our vision research. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing, absolutely amazing moment in time where all this work that's been done in the lab, the discovery lab science is is really uh, making the transition into into a clinic, into clinical trials, and now the first treatment has come out of a clinical trial and has been approved by Health Canada. Yes. We're hoping that it become available to Canadians and that, that there isn't a financial barrier to receive this million-dollar treatment. Uh, we're, we're working uh, to, uh, to work with our provincial governments across the country to encourage them to fast-track approval that, that this treatment can be available to Canadians because really every day people are losing cells that are required for sight. And, and for those with, with the gene, it doesn't have to happen. Wow. That would be terrific. That would, you know, if all of that could be done, it would cut way down on the incidence of blindness in Canada, that's for sure. Uh, absolutely. And just, just like anti-VEGF treatments for... AMD, those eye injections that people go in once or, two, once or every once a month or every two months, you mm-hmm. know, that stabilizes. And, and for some people with diabetes-related vision loss, it actually restores their sight. They, they stop the treatment until, the, until it, their uh, bleeding starts again. But it, it is a game changer. It's going to transform people's lives. It's, it's going to restore sight for those that still have uh, enough uh, of their of, of the photoreceptors, the, the eye function still left, the cells haven't died because of because that, that biologic process to feed and keep the cells healthy and functioning uh, it didn't have that protein that's produced by RPE65. So when, this is the first, uh, the first treatment, it's happened. You know, why, why families, parents came together 47 years ago to form Fighting Blindness Canada because their child was that 
diagnosed with a, with a blinding eye disease and there were no treatments. We didn't understand why the biology, what was happening in the eye, the biology, what genes had to do. Uh, that's changed. Mm -hmm. Science is changing. Uh, five years ago, there was one clinical trial. It was what became Lexterna, now approved by Health Canada. We're tracking a fighting blindness Canada over 70 tri trials, clinical trials around the world oh. uh, uh, for just inherited retinal diseases. We're tracking trials in, in AMD, glaucoma, diabetic retinopathy. Uh, one, one of our funded researchers in, in Montreal just, uh, just actually got uh, a biotech company in San Francisco, just picked up his research in, from Montreal, and they're now doing the final test to move to clinical trials. Uh, so it, it's just an amazing moment in time, and we've got to accelerate it. Uh, we've got to ensure Canadians have access at the earliest possible moment through clinical trials. And when a drug like Lucasterna gets approved by Health Canada, that our provincial governments put it on the uh, drug benefits so that, that there's no barrier to access, that, that people can restore their sight, can avoid blindness as soon as possible uh, to be able to, if they want to have the choice, uh, to take advantage of these treatments uh, for themselves or maybe the next generation. Uh, that's what we're asking people to join us for, Screens Off for Sight. To go to fbcscreensoff.ca, sign up, take the challenge, and challenge others, and help raise funds to accelerate this amazing moment in time uh, for Canadians living with blindness. All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, chatting. Uh, with us about that, and um, I just maybe get you to give the, the uh, website again so that uh, people have that, uh, that in their minds and they can go and register and encourage their friends to do that. Yes, so it's FBC Screens Off, so S-E-R-E-E-N-S off O-F-F dot C-A, so FBC Screens Off dot C-A. All right, that's great. Just one more question, maybe. <clears throat> you had mentioned something earlier about um, relationship to cancer. Does that or would that have anything to do with retinoblastoma? Yes, so ret retinoblastoma is, is a form of cancer that's yes. in the eye. Okay. Yeah, so it, it, it is a, one of the causes of blindness, absolutely. Uh, the test uh, so, so Mount uh, Sinai Health actually is where this research is going on. They developed uh, a test, uh, a tool in in the fight against cancer, uh, where they where they were taking genes and being able to run it up against this library of molecules. Uh, so that so we the scientist that was involved in this has an interest in the eye, and he thought maybe I could do this for inherited forms of, of blinding eye disease. And uh, we were fortunate he, he had the best, most promising research, the high risk, high reward, but, you know, an educated risk because it, it, happened, it worked for, in a cancer circumstance, and we've, we've been able to fund him. In the first year, he proved the test works, and now, now we're just going gene by gene by gene, seeing these, uh, these molecules, which ones are, are triggering, doing something, and then that, that really just allows us to focus on those, those molecules to see whether or not uh, it's making a positive impact to save sight or, or restore it. Mm -hmm. So, okay, you know, there, there is it's just a, a benefit of, of some 
AI improve the technology and uh, fast track uh, help us as well. Okay. And so then retinoblastoma, is there some element of hereditary? Uh, um, we don't. question I wanted to ask you was about Luxturna. How, when do you think Health Canada, and they seem to have been taking forever to uh, approve that? Um, is there any... Uh, so, uh, when, when I was on your show in, in 2020, uh, it had not been approved, but, uh-huh. but actually now it is. October, oh. In October 2020, uh, Luxterna was approved by Health Canada to be a treatment available to Canadians. And, and there are two bodies. Uh, one, one is called CADAF, and it deals with English Canada, and uh, primarily English Canada. And then, and then NS is the Quebec uh, equivalent organization. So both of them are agencies that recommend to the provincial government uh, that they should fund uh, that, they, that they should make uh, pay for through the public health system uh, a treatment, and both CADAS and NS recommended to to the provincial government that Luxterna should be funded. So now, Health Canada approved in October, uh, CADAS and NS approved in November, late November, beginning of December, wow. and so now we're in conversations with the provincial government. We're encouraging them to fast track. Uh, their uh, this uh, treatment to be approved. Uh, they're fast tracking the negotiations with the pharma company that that uh, is bringing the, this treatment to Canada, and we're hopeful that that sooner than later, sooner than later, yes. uh, I wanted to, that the negotiations will be concluded and that the provincial governments will say yes, we will fund this treatment. Uh, so we're we're actively. In conversations, trying to speed up the process because every day people with this gene are losing their sight and they don't need to. Wow, that's that's terrific. So hopefully, uh, when we chat again, <clears throat> by that time, the provincial governments will have made their decisions to fund it. Absolutely, sooner the better is all I have to say. <laughs> no kidding, that's for sure. Boy, I'll say. All right. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us uh, about this, and it's really exciting, and uh, um, we'll look forward to following all of this. And so uh, um, we'll encourage people to find some other activity to keep them busy on the 20th of uh, March. And uh, and uh, anything that doesn't involve a screen. <laughs> exactly. Rest your eyes and, uh, and and raise a little bit of funds for uh, this incredible vision research at uh, 
thanks again. I really appreciate chatting with you. March is also anti-fraud month, and so it's a, a good time to be thinking of all the ways that some unscrupulous people have dreamed up of robbing us of our hard-earned money. So, especially in, in light of the scams that are going around now, I thought it would be a good idea for us to once again listen to an interview that I did last year with Ian Thompson from Trent University. So listen well and uh, definitely take heed to what he says because it's so easy for us to be caught off guard. Well, hi, Ian, and welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Now, I understand that you uh, work at Trent University in, in cybersecurity. Is that it? Um, yeah, I'm the, uh, the manager of uh, cybersecurity and client outreach in the IT department at the university. Okay, that's terrific. We've got the uh, definitely the right fellow to talk to about cybersecurity. So what do you suggest to people first when when they are getting into using computers and that sort of thing? Um, what do you suggest as, as uh, protective measures? Yeah, um, that's a really interesting question because as we, you know, we see on the news so much about this topic and, and just, you know, how often it comes up. And I think the biggest message that I have for people is that the, the technology alone can't totally defend you. Um, a lot of what we see is, you know, they're tricks. They're scams and tricks, and they're just coming through the computer. Um, but they're not, they're not really, you know, very technical scams. It's more about trying to trick you into doing something like clicking a link, uh, or, you know, entering your personal information online. So the most important thing that I would say to, to uh, everybody listening is that you, you have to be sort of aware of what these issues are, learn how to spot them, um, because the technology itself can't always, you know, it, it doesn't always do the greatest job of uh, picking out those, those scams that are more social. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that's probably the biggest get a lot of, of spam and right now I have something that comes through almost every day that's admin and it doesn't really say who it's from so I'm, I'm uh, kind of leery of checking out even clicking on those emails yeah absolutely uh, one thing with email for sure is that um, it's really easy to make it look like it's from anybody you want I mean that, that's really trivial to do that. So a lot of the times they try to fake the email to make it look like it's from somebody important or from, you know, your system administrator to try and get you to open it. Um, 
when in reality it's, it's really just a scam trying to get you to click a link or, or something that's not legitimate at all. Yes. Do you think it's a good idea for people to do such things as banking and shopping online? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely. I mean, I bank online and shop online myself. And, and the banks and the, the large uh, companies have done a really good job at trying to keep things safe. Um, what you want to be aware of is, is um, you know, uh, risky behavior, like entering your credit card or your personal information on, you know, outside of sort of the mainstream websites. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, um, knowing the, the banks are actually really great at giving you security tips. So reading those and making sure you're not, you know, uh, entering it into some other website that's not like your bank but looks like it. Yeah. If you're if you're actually using, like, the bank's website or Amazon.com, those are all very safe and very well protected. Okay, that's good to hear um, this close to the shopping season. Absolutely. Black Friday is coming up. So yes, that's we're all shopping online a little bit more now that the pandemic's, uh, you know, so so uh, once again uh, troubling us all. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I understand there are also uh, schemes like uh, phishing schemes that mm-hmm. people should be careful of. Yeah, phishing is where they try and send you an email that looks like it's from a legitimate source. Ah. But what they're trying to get you to do is click on a link um, and either give up your password, which, of course, they can use uh, to break into some of your sites, um, or to install something on your computer that could, you know, potentially hijack it. So, um, yeah, very, very common. Um, I think uh, I read a statistic somewhere that said that uh, phishing was up 200% since the start of the pandemic. Oh, my goodness. That's yeah, awful. So, so quite a sizable increase for sure. Yes. Yeah. Uh, not long ago, I got an email from somebody uh, out in Fresno, California, and uh, she wanted uh, in the email, it said, uh, I wondered if you could pick up some uh, greeting cards for me. Well, that was just so out of character. And how was I going to get them to her in Fresno, California, when I'm here in Peterborough, Ontario? So um, I wrote to a a mutual acquaintance and said to her, do you know if Tony is is okay? You know, uh, she's uh, got everything together, does she? Uh, She wouldn't want me to be picking up greeting cards, would she? And uh, Jill told me I should just delete the whole thing. So, uh, And I also received uh, an email from uh, a, a mutual acquaintance uh, for you and me, that being Andrew, the uh, president of our amateur radio club. And uh, he said uh, in the email, which he didn't send, of course, that he needed money. So I think we have to be careful of those things, too, don't we? Oh, absolutely, and, and that's a, those are both very common schemes. Um, in, in the first one with, with the greeting cards, what had happened was that person probably had their own email broken into, mm-hmm. um, and, and the scammers do that because they think it's going to be a lot more believable if it comes from someone you know. Right? Yeah. They don't have to try and think it. Um, in Andrew's case, it's, it's really easy to figure out who the president of the club is because I, I, I would bet that information is just publicly listed on a website somewhere. Yes, it is, yeah. So it's, it's really easy for the scammers to get access to this kind of information, and, and it's all about trying to make the scammers 
scam seem more believable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. Sorry. No, I was just going to say it's really interesting. I, I mean, it's terrible that they have to do these, these kinds of things uh, to us. But uh, from a professional point of view, it's, it's quite interesting to see the, the lengths that they go to. Yes. It is too bad that they waste time on things that won't <clears throat> continue to, to bring them a satisfaction instead of turning their minds to more um, creative uh, activities. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A lot of these scams actually have origins in um, things like uh, organized crime, or they come from areas of the world that are, uh, you know, very criminal, uh, um, criminal uh, culture yes. places. You know, where crime rates are a lot of high. As well. Sorry, that's what I was trying to say. Um, so uh, yes, it is very unfortunate um, that you know that, that these scams propagate from these areas. But that also is what makes them so hard to police, um, given the international aspect of them. Yes, let's stay with computers for a minute, like desktops and laptops. And um, are there any uh, products or virus detecting websites that? you would suggest or recommend to people to install? Yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of great products out there that, that do this, and they're, they're sort of the big names that you might expect uh, that you see online. McAfee and Norton and Trend Micro and so those are all uh, big name brands. What I like to do, and it might actually save your listeners some, some money, is, is I like to shop around uh, for a lot of those big players, watch what comes over in, in the Black Friday sale or the Boxing Day sale, and find one of the ones that you know gives you five or ten copies of it for a low price. Mm-hmm. And then you can sort of pool with your family or your friends, and you can all get protected at a really, really, really good price. So, yeah. But technology-wise, they're all fairly similar. They all do uh, fairly. It's kind of like asking people what, what, whether they prefer PCs or Macs. You know, there's <laughs> varied opinions on either side. Yeah, sure. Um, but they, but they all, they all work uh, quite well uh, along those mainstream. And if you watch out for the sales and the multi-packs, you can usually get some good protection at a really good price. Oh, that's good. And what about um, protective uh, websites for um, smart devices? Mm-hmm. Are, are they similar to Norton and McAfee and that sort of things? Yeah, some of the uh, some of those those multi packs would actually uh, come with uh, protection for your mobile devices, mm-hmm. your tablets, and those kinds of things. Although most of the time, those are a little bit less susceptible to the same kind of malware that we see with PC, uh, just because you have to go to like an app store to be able to download something. Mm-hmm. But I would say if if you know if you're concerned, um, you can you can look for one of those uh, products that come with a bundle. If if you do get it's a good thing to install, um, but definitely your, your PC, your, your Mac, your laptop is really where you want to focus your protection on. Yes. Okay. And uh, what uh, is your opinion on password management? Oh, yes. Password management is so important um, because, um, you know, the reuse of passwords has, has made it all the more easy for uh, the, the scammers and the hackers to try and get one password and uh, get into multiple accounts. So I think a 
password management tool like that. LastPass is, is a really great password management tool. Mm-hmm. What it does is it creates a vault of your passwords and it sets them uh, randomly for you. So every site that you go to has a different password, but it automatically fills them in for you on your computer. Oh. So that's a great thing to do. Um, but if you're not going to do that, because that can be a bit of a jump uh, technically, it takes you a little while to get used to it. Mm-hmm. What I would kind of recommend to people on the lower end of that is have um, categories of passwords. So maybe I have one password for things like my online banking and my CRA and, you know, all those super important services. And then I have another password uh, that's completely different for online shopping and, you know, uh, social media. And then I have another uh, password for, for things that I really, you know, really don't have a lot of information about me. Mm-hmm. And really what you're trying to do there is just compartmentalize in case one of those things gets um, gets broken into and that password gets stolen. It doesn't really affect some of the uh, the more important stuff. Oh, okay. That's a good idea. Where where do you, if they don't use something like uh, LastPass, um, where do you suggest storing passwords? Yeah, my, my parents uh, still have all their passwords in a little book by the nightstand. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and from a technical perspective, I mean, that's pretty safe, right? Um, yeah, that's so, true. You, know, you have to worry about something like that being physically stolen, but, um, you know, uh, that that's not a bad way to, to do it either. Certainly from the technology side, the, the more that you – the more the different passwords you have, the better. Yes. And uh, I don't imagine you suggest uh, passwords like uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. <laughs> no, actually. I, uh, I teach part-time at Fleming, and we actually do exercises where we try to uh, crack those, those types of passwords. And anything numerical or based on a dictionary word uh, yeah. uh, can be cracked relatively quickly within, within a, an hour, certainly. Um, So what I recommend always is, you know, random series of of numbers and letters and special characters. One good trick if you're you're really stuck to try and remember passwords is think of a line from your favorite song and make that your password because it it really gives you a lot of length, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And it's one thing being sort of strung together so it's not a dictionary word. Right. And then you'd probably have to stick a couple of digits somewhere in the middle. <laughs> yes, absolutely, to make sure you're, you're satisfying those complexity requirements. Maybe just something as simple as an exclamation mark at the end or a, um, a, a number instead of spelling out the words, like number four instead of F-O-U-R. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That sounds good. Uh, any other tips uh, that you might like to pass along? I think uh, I think just just again just being aware of what's out there and, and putting things in context. You know, you mentioned that that scam with um, with your friend with the, the greeting cards. Uh, mm-hmm. Just just sort of being aware of context is really key. You know, would my bank really want me to click on this? Does this person really want me to do this? Um, I call it think before you click. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's a good way to remember it. Yes, definitely. I, Trying to avoid that knee-jerk reaction sometimes can, can really save you a lot of headaches. Yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, not too long ago, I got a, an email saying that someone had been hurt in a, another country, and uh, could I send uh, or wire some money to uh, help that person get back to Canada? 
So instead of uh, doing that, I checked with other mutual friends, and he wasn't out of the country, and he certainly wasn't injured. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah very common. Yeah. Those, those kinds of scams, they'll, they'll really they'll try anything to try and get it. Most of the time, it's money is what they're after. So. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And uh, the calls that you get uh, about... There's something wrong with your computer. Uh, definitely, oh. just hang up. Right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, any of those ones. I mean, I, I CR, CRA. I'm not. You can't see it, but I'm making air quotes. Um, <laughs> he told me I'm going to jail so many times. You know. Oh yes. Microsoft says there's something wrong with your computer or Google. They don't call. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> so uh, yeah, just hang up on on all of those. You know, if it doesn't yeah. sound right. No, that's right. And there's really no sense in uh, trying to continue the conversation with them or anything like uh, try to um, pull a gag of your own either because it's only just a waste of time, isn't it? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, yeah. They, they have banks of these and call centers that just do this sort of all day long. So, I mean, you can waste a little bit of their time, but uh, ultimately it's not going to really help you very much. No. Well, thank you very much for chatting with us. Uh, I think um, going over this every once in a while is a really good idea, and I appreciate the fact that uh, you agreed to uh, chat with us about that. No, no problem. Thank you for having me. It was, uh, it was great to spread a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of awareness uh, with all of your listeners today. Okay, that's great. You'll remember a couple of weeks ago that I said that March was Kidney Health Month. Well, as it turns out, it's also Liver Health Awareness Month. And uh, to um, honor the occasion, I'm going to play a recording that I made a couple of years ago with Dr. Morris Sherman, who is a liver specialist. And he is particularly concerned with hepatitis C. Well, first of all, Dr. Sherman, thank you very much for being on the program with us. Not at all. Can you remind us again how important the liver is to the human body? Well, uh, you can't exist without a liver. Um, Or if your liver's not working properly, you really get terribly sick and can die. So it's it's crucial. And I I take it that the liver performs a a number of functions in the body. Um, It's kind of like the chemical factory in the body. It takes all the things that uh, we ingest through our intestinal system and it breaks them down. And if they're toxins, it excretes them. And if it's uh, substances, chemicals that we need for the body, it reassembles them in the proteins, fats, and other substances that the body can use. Now, how do people, uh, you're right, the Canadian Liver Foundation is doing a campaign at the moment uh, called um, Could You Have It? How, what is hepatitis C and how do people, how can people get it? virus which sits in the liver it 
causes inflammation, and the inflammation in turn causes the, the laying down of scar tissue. And when you have enough scar tissue, that's the condition known as cirrhosis. Uh, and then as the disease progresses and has more and more uh, scar tissue is laid down, it, uh, it replaces sufficient normal liver function, normal liver tissue, that liver function starts to be impaired. With all the inflammation, cells die and have to be replaced. Uh, and this process of cell death and cell regeneration uh, leads to the development of mutations in the genetic material of the cell, and this ultimately can lead to cancer. So the end result of hepatitis C for many, many patients is cirrhosis, liver failure, and liver cancer. How do you get hepatitis C? <laughs> well, when we, hepatitis C was first uh, identified, it was recognized that this was a, transmitted by blood-to-blood contact, and essentially what that meant in those days was needles, and it still means that uh, for the most part. But the question is, where did the needles come from? Initially, we thought it was transfusion uh, with contaminated blood, then we thought it was uh, through injection drug use, with sharing of needles, and all of those are, are, are true, although nobody gets it from transfusion in Canada anymore. But the majority, the vast majority of people who have hepatitis C did not acquire it through uh, transfusion or through injection drug use. They acquired it from medical procedures back in the 19, late 1940s, 1950s, uh, mostly vaccination practices with, uh, proceed with uh, instruments that were not properly sterilized between use. So uh, in many parts of the world, uh, the majority, and in Canada too, the majority of patients who have hepatitis C did not get them through some stigmatizing behavior. So can you have the symptoms for quite a while before you realize that you're sick? Well, the problem with hepatitis C and, and many other liver diseases is that you don't have symptoms until the liver fails. So you don't know you've got the disease until it's really very, very late in the, in the stage of the disease at a, point, at a time point at which it may not be possible to do anything about it. How long might you have had the disease before you begin to notice symptoms? It could be anywhere from 10 to 50 years. Oh, my goodness. So the Canadian Liver Foundation and other uh, liver-related groups have uh, recommended that People born between 1945 and 1975 should be tested for hepatitis C. It requires a simple blood test and only needs to be done once. And the reason for this is because most of the infections occurred in the 1950s to early 1960s. And that uh, birth cohort from 1945 to 1975 includes somewhere between 70 to 80 percent of all hepatitis C in Canada whether it's Canadian-born or immigrant populations. They all, the majority, fit into that age uh, category. And if you look at it another way, uh, somewhere in the range of 2 to 3% of people in that age group will turn out to have hepatitis C. And how common is hepatitis C at the moment? Somewhere in the range of 10,000 cases a year are notified to Health Canada. Wow. Uh, so can they, can I mean, people, sorry? These are mostly not new cases. These are mostly people who've been 
infected many, many years ago and who are only now being diagnosed because somebody discovers some abnormal liver blood tests or because they're being screened or for some process, some medical condition, and hepatitis C turns up. Um, is, is hepatitis C something, how do you go about curing it if it's in the, still in the curative stage? Well, uh, these days we have very simple and very effective treatment. These days treatment is one tablet once a day for anywhere from 8 to 12 weeks, and the cure rate is better than 95%. Wow. That gets rid of the virus. If you have cirrhosis, it doesn't necessarily reverse the cirrhosis. So you, cirrhosis is the biggest risk factor for liver failure and liver cancer, so ideally we'd like to catch people before they get to the cirrhosis stage. Because if we treat them then, their risk of developing these bad outcomes uh, is virtually zero. And would you, if it had gone past the the early stages, uh, would uh, liver transplant or you know partial liver transplant work? Uh, yes, I mean these days we um, we trans well. It used to be that hepatitis C was the commonest reason for liver transplantation. Now that we have treatment, it's no longer the commonest reason. Uh, but liver cancer related to hepatitis C and other liver diseases is now the most common cause. And it used to be that um, people who were treated, who had a liver transplant with hepatitis C, that uh, if we were not able to treat the hepatitis C, they tended to have much more aggressive disease after transplant. Now, of course, with the new treatments that we have, these very effective treatments, this is all preventable. So if somebody has hepatitis C at the time of transplant, they get treated after the transplant, and uh, they don't have any further complications from hepatitis C. Or if the hepatitis C is identified prior to transplant, they get treated at that stage. And some people actually no longer need a transplant. So treatment of hepatitis C is very effective. That's great. And so in order to get the blood test that uh, you're no. recommending, with the, sorry? Yeah, I'm listening. Yeah, would someone just go to their uh, family doctor? Ideally, yes, uh, and ask for the hepatitis C test. There has been, this has been somewhat controversial, uh, although all the liver disease communities of so the Canadian Liver Foundation, the Canadian Association for the Study of Liver, uh, and many gastroenterologists all recommend screening, there is a body known as the Canadian Task Force on Preventative Health, and they came out with a statement last year saying that should not do screening. And the main reason, well, it was very controversial because their assessment when was, it was reviewed by uh, liver disease experts, there were many, many assumptions in, the, in that document which were quite wrong. And so they came out with a recommendation that there should be no screening, but um, it's, that's really just not tenable because of the all the incorrect assumptions that they made in their study. Okay. So uh, some people might meet some resistance if they go to their doctor to ask for... They might. They might on the basis of that, but they can always quote the Canadian Liver Foundation or the Canadian Association with the Study of Liver, which is a, an organization of liver disease professionals, uh, physicians, they can always quote those recommendations. In fact, the 
that they should be screening. So they can quote that article. Okay. And uh, if they still meet resistance, is there, are there any other alternatives? Um, yeah, I'm sure there are. You can go to another doctor, go to a walk-in clinic and ask for testing to be done. Mm-hmm. Some doctors may refuse point blank, but then it's basically you have to shop around and find somebody who can do it. But this is not everybody, right? We're talking about people who were born between 1945 and 1975. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, is there anything else that we should be discussing that I haven't asked you about? Well, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate this. I know you're a busy man, and I do appreciate your time with us. Okay, you're welcome. Well, that just about brings us to the end of another edition of Insight Peterborough. But before I go, I did want to say, referring to that second interview that you heard, please do be careful about falling for scams. For example, there is one going around now where the person, either on the phone or in an email, says that if you pay this amount of money, they can get you further up in the the queue to get your vaccination for COVID-19. And that's definitely a scam. The vaccinations don't cost anything. The vaccine doesn't cost us anything, except in our taxes, eventually. So if if someone calls or emails to say that they can get you uh, further up in the queue to uh, get a, a shot in the arm, ignore it. Tell them to go fish, or something like that, if they're on the phone. All right, well, I guess that uh, does another Insight Peterborough for the uh, week of uh, March 15th, and uh, and then you'll hear it again if you want to on the, on the Friday. Um, take good care, and thanks so much for listening. Talk soon. Bye for now.